Good evening, everyone. On behalf of the Center for the Study of Human Rights at LSC, the host of our event this evening, it's my sincere pleasure to welcome you all, especially our distinguished speaker, uh, Dr. Navanathan Pile Mavi, popularly known as the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. My name is Chaloka Bayani. I'll be chairing the event this evening. I'm Senior Lecturer in International Law uh, in the Law Department, um, a member of the Center for Human Rights, and also United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons. The topic of the event this evening is freedom of expression and head speech, what international human rights law says. And I can say that NAVI brings substantial authority, not just to human rights, but to this topic as specifically. She was appointed UN High Commissioner for Human Rights by the General Assembly in 2008, and the United Nations General Assembly in 2012 extended her mandate for a period of two years. Navi is a South African national. She was the first woman to start a law practice in her home province of Natal in 1967. Over the next few years, she acted as defense attorney for anti-apartheid activists, exposing torture and helping establish key rights for prisoners on Robben Island. In South Africa, as a member of the Women's National Coalition, she contributed to the inclusion of an equality clause in the country's constitution that prohibits discrimination on grounds of race, religion, and sexual orientation. She co-founded Equality Now, an international women's rights organization, and has been involved with other organizations working on issues related to children, detainees, victims of torture, and of domestic violence, and a range of economic, social, and cultural rights. She also worked as a lecturer at uh, the University of KwaZulu-Natal, and later was appointed vice president of the Council of the University uh, of Durban-Westville. In 1995, after the end of apartheid, she was appointed an acting judge on the South African High Court. And in the same year, she was elected by the United Nations General Assembly to be a judge on the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, where she served a total of eight years, uh, the last four years as president of that tribunal. She played a critical role in that tribunal's groundbreaking jurisprudence on rapist genocide, as well as on issues of freedom of speech and her propaganda. In 2003, she was elected a judge on the International Criminal Court uh, in The Hague, where she remained until 2008, uh, when she became High Commissioner. The High Commissioner will speak for about 40 minutes. Um, thereafter, there will be time for questions and for comments, and please make your comments uh, short. She'll make the speech, so we don't want any more speeches after that. Um, the event is being recorded, and because of that, may I kindly request that you please turn off your mobile phones so that we don't get any interference uh, with sound. We'll end at about 7.30, um, and we'll pick three questions at a time. Hi, Commissioner, you have the floor. I'm very pleased to have this opportunity to uh, address you today, and I'm really looking forward to the dialogue that we will have on this very important and controversial subject. This is actually the second time that I'm delivering a lecture here, and so while why I was frowning when I walked in is I don't see my picture there, Chilo. <laughs> so if you we'll want me sure here a third time, you know what to do. <laughs> 
Um, so hate speech or claims of hate speech and violent reaction to perceived hate speech have in the past decade created enormous friction across the globe. And this storm of uh, controversy may reflect the kind of world that lies ahead in this 21st century when we will increasingly live side by side with people whom we perceive as different from ourselves. More than half the world's population now live in cities. And this proximity, together with migration and the internet, means that the risk of stepping on someone's toes, of saying or doing something that exceeds someone's boundaries, is at a new peak today. There is an established framework of international law on this topic. But clearly, member states of the United Nations have indicated a great uh, need for better guidance on how it should be implemented. And this is a very delicate matter to address. Free speech is vital to human dignity. It is the cornerstone of every democratic society because it is an enabling right, a right that allows individuals to argue for their enjoyment of all the other rights, from fair trials and free elections to decent living conditions. So as a matter of fundamental principle, the limitation of any kind of speech or expression must remain an exception. On the other hand, speech can be an incitement to action in some cases very violent and hateful action. I recall a case that I heard as a judge in 1998 on the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. This was really a worst case scenario. People working at a radio station and a newspaper had quite outrightly called for massacres using very unambiguous words. Because of cases like these, where speech can be clearly linked to wrongful action, international law requires states to ban certain speech that undermines the rights or reputation of others. And it also, on certain conditions, permits speech to be prohibited on the basis that this is necessary to protect public order, public health, or morals. There are very forthright views on this question of how to balance freedom of expression with the need to prohibit hate speech. Some argue that speech and express, expression should never be limited at all. They point out, and this unfortunately is true, that laws limiting speech are very often misused by authorities to muzzle critics and silence minorities. A number of other people, on the contrary, argue for far more control of speech. They seek more norms to protect much more extensive areas of human activity from criticism or ridicule or scrutiny. So what I intend to do today is first review the key international human rights law standards regarding hate speech and look at how these have been interpreted by the international bodies that oversee their implementation. I'll then outline two significant challenges that face us in respect of those international norms. 
Thirdly, I would like to discuss recent moves to provide more expert guidance regarding the application of these existing international laws. This guidance results from a rather remarkable process that my office facilitated in 2011 and 2012, and this has culminated in a plan of action on the prohibition of advocacy of national, racial, or religious hatred, which constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility, or violence. The document, which was adopted by a number of internationally recognized experts in the matter, will be launched in Geneva in one week's time. So really, you're getting a preview of this here. The intention of my office in facilitating this guidance has been to foster more effective implementation of the international prohibition on incitement to uh, hatred while de deterring laws and practices that would undermine freedom of expression. As I'm sure you appreciate, the law alone cannot resolve very complex social and cultural questions of this kind, and the balancing must be done by judges and the courts via a responsible body of jurisprudence. However, I very much hope that the guidance that has been produced will be of assistance in shaping a calm and concerted approach to this very inflammatory topic. So firstly then, the International Covenant on Civil and Polit Political Rights in its Article 19 guarantees the right to freedom of opinion and expression. But unlike, say, the law regarding genocide or torture, uh, slavery, and crimes against humanity, the right to freedom of expression is not absolute. Thus, Article 19 of the ICCPR allows certain restrictions when they are necessary for respect of the rights or reputation of others or for the protection of national security, public order, or of public health or morals. In addition to Article 19, there's Article 20 of the Covenant, which actually requires prohibition of propaganda for war and, I quote, any advocacy of national, racial, or religious hatred that constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility, or violence. So these two articles of the Covenant, 19 and 20, are distinct and even in tension, a fact that is evident in the drafting history. They were kept separate to highlight that Article 19 guarantees the right to freedom of expression, while Article 20 actually imposes an obligation upon states to prohibit certain kinds of speech. However, it was also decided to place these articles next to each other to emphasize their close relationship. The Human Rights Committee, the UN treaty body which oversees the implementation of this covenant seeks to balance these two articles so that individuals may be protected against incitement to hatred while the authorities maintain the least possible interference with freedom of expression. The committee has stated in its uh, general comment 34 that any measure seeking to implement Article 20.2 must satisfy the test for restrictions on freedom of expression under Article 
This was confirmed in the case of Ross versus Canada. In that situation, an author and teacher who promoted anti-Jewish views in publications and in the classroom was dismissed from his post. He claimed violations of Articles 18 and 19 of ICCPR. The committee found no violation of the covenant and also recognized both the relevance of restrictions to freedom of expression and the permission to act under Article 20 of the ICCPR. A second instrument, the International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, or ICERD, which was adopted by the General Assembly in 1965, was actually the first international treaty to deal directly with the question of hate speech. Article 4 of the ICERD requires states to work to eradicate all incitement to racial discrimination. Dissemination of ideas based on racial superiority or hatred, acts of violence or incitement to such acts against any race or ethnic group and the provision of assistance to racist activities must be declared punishable by law. At the time, some states voiced strong opposition to the prohibition of uh, mere dissemination of ideas based on racial superiority or hatred, presumably concerned about its impact on freedom of expression. Views also differed on whether criminal law prohibitions on incitement were appropriate or whether a focus on education was preferable. Some of these concerns later resurfaced in the form of reservations to that convention, and these dormant tensions of some 50 years ago clearly still have resonance today. In reviewing reports prepared by states, the third committee has emphasized the importance of prohibiting incitement to hatred. For instance, the committee consistently reminds states of their obligation to ban organizations, including mass media, which promote and incite racial discrimination. In one instance, the committee recommended that the state consider extending the crime of incitement to cover offenses motivated by religious hatred against immigrant communities. The committee has also recommended the introduction of provision designated racist motivations for crimes and more recently motivations of religious hatred as aggravating circumstances. In general, third emphasizes that hate speech can contribute to racial violence and even to genocide. Third's general recommendation 15 written in 1993, recalls that the drafters regarded Article 4 as central to the struggle against racial discrimination in view of, I quote, a widespread fear of the revival of authoritarian ideologies. The recommendation strongly affirms that freedom of expression is compatible with prohibiting ideas based on racial um, superiority or hatred responding to some states' claims that it is inappropriate to declare an organization illegal before its members have promoted or incited racial discrimination, 
Third finds that the paragraph places, I quote, a burden upon such states to be vigilant in proceeding against such organizations at the earliest moment. In the case of the Jewish community of Oslo versus Norway, the committee considered a case of a group known as the Boot Boys, which organized and participated in a march in commemoration of the Nazi leader Rudolf Hess. The leader of the march, Mr. Scholli, made a speech in honor of Rudolf Hess. The Supreme Court of Norway found that penalizing approval of Nazism and prohibiting Nazi organizations would be incompatible with freedom of speech. However, I third argued that Mr. Soshi's speech contained ideas based on racial superiority or hatred and that the deference to Hitler and his principles must be taken into account as incitement to racial discrimination, if not violence. And so the committee concluded that Mr. Soji's acquittal by the Norwegian Supreme Court violated the convention. Clearly, there is a complex relationship between freedom of expression and prohibition of hate speech, which requires assessment on a case-by-case basis. And this is rendered even more delicate by the distinct approaches to incitement to hatred in these two major treaties. The Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination offers more far-reaching protection against incitement to hatred, albeit within the more limited racial scope of the treaty, and lists prohibitions in considerably more detail than the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Consequently, practice under ICERD has tended to apply the prohibition on incitement more broadly in comparison to the Human Rights Committee's practice. I'd like now to address uh, two very significant challenges to implementing these two core legal instruments. The first challenge is one of definition. Intolerance and even intense dislike of others may in some contexts be quite legitimate emotions. For example, when we criticize people who have oppressed vulnerable persons. So when is the expression of hatred permissible? And when is it prohibited? What form may that expression take? And what is the threshold? Last August, Uh, Last August, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination held a thematic discussion on racist hate speech where this question was discussed. It was suggested that severity should be a key factor. Severity could be determined by examining who made the statement, what was the statement, and the timing of the statement, how likely was harm, and how imminent the danger. Was the speaker in a position of authority with leadership of millions or a lone individual? The suggestion that intent also uh, be viewed as an important factor was more controversial as under, sir, under the third convention, the mere dissemination of certain material is prohibited. There is no requirement to demonstrate intent in relation to demonstrate to discrimination, so this has the potential to challenge 
a number of assumptions under human rights law. In the ICCPR, however, the element of advocacy in uh, Article 20 could be understood as requiring intent. The case of Forisang versus France concerned the case of a university professor who was dismissed and later fined under the French Gaysart law after alleging that the gas chambers at Nazi concentration camps had not been used for extermination of Jews. The Human Rights Committee ruled in favor of France, and although it did not examine the relevance of Article 20, several individual opinions expressed concern that the French Gaysart law did not require intent on the part of the author in order to hold him liable. This French law, as you know, prohibits denial of the Holocaust. A third factor relevant to determining the prohibition of certain speech is the context in which the speech is made. Complaining in a national newspaper that immigrants occupied jobs formerly given to natives might be a fair observation. However, making the same statement outside an immigrant's home might constitute incitement to hatred. One context-related indicator to indicate whether speech should be seen as incitement to hatred could be a history of uh, violence and persecution. Causation is an interesting point. Inciting an act is not the same thing as causing one. And it's possible to argue that incitement should be punishable even if no one has followed it up with action. Still, when assessing whether speech incites hatred, court, courts often look for causation factors. In the case of Ross versus Canada, for instance, the Supreme Court of Canada noted that, in quote, a poisoned environment had been created within the relevant school board, possibly because of Ross's publications. Now, similarly, in the Forissin versus France case, it was noted that Forissin's statements, I quote, were of a nature as to raise or strengthen anti-Semitic feelings, close quotes. Another key suggestion is to draw a clear line between expression targeting ideas, which is to be protected, and on the other hand, abuse of expression that targets human beings, which may not be protected. The United Nations Human Rights Committee has clarified that, I quote, the mere fact that forms of expression are considered to be insulting to a public figure is not sufficient to justify the imposition of penalties. Consequently, the committee has expressed concern regarding laws on issues such as les majesty, desiccato, disrespect for authority, disrespect for flags and symbols, defamation of the head of state, and the protection of the honor of public of officials. So very many states have these laws. So you see, sometimes it may be quite difficult to distinguish between hate speech and speech that is merely offensive 
for there is no firmly agreed definition of hate speech in international law. And perhaps neither should there be one. Instead, we have a number of slightly different regional and national approaches. Some countries protect hate speech unless the speech actually incites imminent violence. While, on the other hand, uh, there are stringent restrictions on speech in some countries in the context of Holocaust denial or in other countries for the protection of religious doctrine or symbols. Finding a strong, clear, and common definition of hate speech, if at all desirable, is further complicated by the fact that ICERT and the ICCPR address the issue differently. Whatever the applicable regime may be, I purport that it is essential to make a careful distinction between forms of expression that should constitute an offense under criminal law, forms of expression that are not criminally punishable but may justify a civil suit, and forms of expression that do not give rise to sanctions but may raise concerns in terms of tolerance, civility, and respect, such as racism in sports. This then brings us to our next challenge, which centers on claims of blasphemy and the concept of defamation of religion. It will have escaped none of you that within the international human rights system in the past 25 years, there have been repeated and vigorous challenges to various forms of speech on the ground that they offend certain believers and belief systems. Central to this movement has been use of the term defamation of religion. For more than a decade, the UN Commission on Human Rights and its successor body, the Human Rights Council, were deadlocked in a debate on this concept. The stalemate has now come to an end, and I propose now to discuss exactly how a way out of the conflict was sought towards firmer and commonly agreed ground. The position of my office has been clear throughout. Human rights law protects individuals and groups, not belief systems. You cannot defame a religion. In fact, it should be possible to scrutinize, openly debate, and even harshly criticize belief systems, opinions, and institutions, including religious ones. This is absolutely intrinsic to the right to freedom of expression. Moreover, the Human Rights Committee has held that blasphemy laws are incompatible with the covenant since they have a stifling impact on the enjoyment of freedom of belief as well as healthy dialogue and debate about religion. So the position of my office has been that there is no need for additional legislation protecting belief systems from defamation because individuals are sufficiently protected under existing norms and the concerns of those who feel offended in their religious or other values can adequately be addressed under the existing framework. What we need is proper guidance for implementing these standards combined with a sufficient degree of political commitment on all sides of the debate. 
In March 2011, the Human Rights Council broke its deadlock regarding this matter with Resolution 16-18. And of course, the same debate on defamation of religion has been going on in the General Assembly. But this resolution in the Human Rights Council, which was unanimous, addresses negative stereotyping, discrimination, incitement to violence, and violence against people based on religion or belief. It reinforced the relevant provisions from international human rights treaties and set out concrete actions to fight these scourges. In doing so, the Human Rights Council managed to move the issue away from the huge storm of public emotion into an intergovernmental body. And whatever you may think of intergovernmental bodies, that to me was a milestone mo moment. Already before the adoption of this landmark resolution, I had initiated a process with the view to bring clarity to the debate. My office took the initiative of organizing a series of high-level expert workshops in the different regions of the world in order to examine legislations, jurisprudence, and national policies on the related issues. A total of five expert workshops were held in 2011 and 2012 in Vienna, Nairobi, Bangkok, Santiago, and Rabat, five regional uh, districts of uh, the United Nations. And uh, these workshops involved three UN special rapporteurs. Our chair is uh, a rapporteur, but he was not there. I was in Nairobi. Oh, he was in Nairobi, yeah. <laughs> so he's going to catch me if I make a mistake. <laughs> so there were three UN special rapporteurs on freedom of opinion and expression, freedom of religion or belief, and racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance, as well as 45 experts from different cultural backgrounds and legal traditions. They recognized the importance of freedom of expression, but also signaled concern about rising intolerance, discrimination, and violence on racial and religious grounds in many parts of the world. The proceedings also shed light on areas of insufficient national legislation, as well as new, vague, and unclear provisions that have been introduced, which are open to misuse. I learned that many governments in response to current challenges have introduced new punitive measures on speech that go beyond the prohibition of incitement to hatred as proscribed in the ICCPR. In particular, participants provided examples of the negative impact of anti-blasphemy laws, problems relating to curbing freedom of information and the use of the internet, examples of harassment of journalists and human rights defenders, and instances where members of minorities are persecuted through the abuse of vague or counterproductive legislation, and of course, discrimination against women. The workshops culminated in an expert meeting in Rabat in October 2012 that adopted a detailed, powerful, and comprehensive plan of action. The conclusions and recommendations of Rabat 
explore the full potential of our existing international law when that law is correctly understood and implemented. In essence, they offer a set of tools to all stakeholders, states, parliaments, and judiciary, civil society, and indeed also regional and international organizations and national organizations to help better implement the existing international human rights norms. The plan of action also recommended that security forces, police, and those involved in the administration of justice be better trained regarding the prohibition of incitement to hatred. It highlighted the need to set up a public policy and regulatory framework that promotes pluralism—I can never get that word—pluralism and diversity of the media, including new media. And it suggested that political parties adopt and enforce ethical guidelines regarding the conduct of their representatives, particularly their public speech. And I know this is very topical here in the UK with the Leveson Commission and, and its recommendations. Rabat also defines six thresholds that must be met for speech to be criminally prohibited. They include context, the speaker's standing, intent to advocate or incite, content, scope or extent, and imminence. Rabat also points out that criminal sanctions related to unlawful expressions uh, forms of expression should be seen as last resort measures to be applied only in strictly justifiable situations. Civil sanctions and remedies should also be considered, including financial and non-financial damages, along with the right of correction and the right of reply. And so we have arrived at the position that we do not, in fact, need more norms or fewer norms for that matter, we have the necessary framework to measure permissible restrictions on freedom of expression and to consider the prohibition of incitement to hatred. What we need is better understanding of those tools as well as a stronger commitment to implementing existing norms and standards. Now, of course, I cannot claim that Rabat has forever resolved the delicate equation between free speech and protection from incitement to hatred. And I cannot claim either that we have achieved universal consensus regarding the protection or non-protection of religions. However, I do think that this plan of action marks a very significant process that has educated all of us in ways to better balance respect for the deeply important right of freedom of expression with the prohibition of incitement to hatred. But uh, the rubber plan of action will not alone achieve this task of constructing a solid framework for a society of diversity and tolerance, for no law could. Legislation is just one part of the larger toolbox we need to respond to the challenges of hate speech in a society where old boundaries are crumbling. We need to create greater empathy and intercultural dialogue and clearly greater involvement of media would be of immense use in this respect. Broadcast and print media must adopt codes of conduct to prohibit 
the use of racist and sexist terms and to stop reporters from relying on stereotypes. They can commit to ensuring a diverse workforce reporting factually and progressively on sensitive topics and ensuring that a proper complaints mechanism is set up. And digital media should also seek to address these issues. Can people of different ba backgrounds, history and religion live together and remain true to themselves without pushing others away? In a world where we all encounter more people from other cultures or who hold very different opinions, it may be a very real challenge to learn to respect fully each other's beliefs and choices. It is my hope that this plan of action will help boost the full implementation of widely accepted international human rights obligations and so help break the world's many vicious cycles of hatred and vengeance. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Well, we now have heard from the High Commissioner, and should I add also the judge, on what international human rights law says about freedom of expression and hate speech in terms of scope, content, substance, as well as effect. Uh, the floor is now yours. We'll invite uh, three questions or comments uh, at a time. And please make them precise and short and related to the theme addressed by the High Commissioner. Um, the questions will be selected on the basis of geographical location around the theatre. Um, and of course, gender equity, not balance, and representation. So who would like to start? Anyone? Silence? Yes, please. There's a roving microphone, please. Just wait for the uh, microphone to reach you. Much more hateful than speech are actions of governments. For example, in Sri Lanka, uh, the successive governments from the time of independence have been oppressing the Tamils in all possible ways. The actions are... Um, have, they have never been seen in this world. For example, a series of pogroms uh, unleashed on the Tamils for just asking for federalism, devolution of power, just asking for saying, oh, we will go separate if you, are, if you keep oppressing us. Now the whole of the uh, Tamil area is under the boots of the army, so that is much more than uh, speech. Okay, thank you very much. We have two more hands there, and there's the gentleman right in the middle. Hello, um, my name is Sejal Palmer. I'm um, from the Human Rights Program at the uh, Central European University, informally with Article 19. Um, I was just curious to know, High Commissioner, about what you thought about the consensus surrounding uh, Resolution 1618. Um, it seems that there might be challenges at this, the 22nd session of the Human Rights Council to that consensus. Um, and I was wondering whether you were worried about that. Um, and also what civil society can do um, in that regard. Um, relatedly, um, what do you think about the Istanbul process, 
uh, to um, implement Resolution 1618? Do you see it as a rival um, or um, a challenge to the authority of other UN mechanisms such as the um, general um, comments produced by the Human Rights Committee? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, High Commissioner. My name is Jackie Hunt. I work with Equality Now, which is an international women's rights organization. And we, with partner organizations, gave evidence to Leveson um, about the treatment of women. And I was interested, you, you picked up on women a couple of times in your speech. What we had found is that women are silenced by some parts of the media, but also damage their chances of justice by portraying uh, the victims as blameworthy, um, so in, especially in rape cases. And this translates directly into jury rooms. So while it might not be traditional hate speech in the way you've been talking about, it definitely it, it, it shuts women up and it prevents them from getting justice, which is huge discrimination. And if we saw that you saw the cover of The Sun today maybe about um, the... Um, Rena Stemkamp, who was allegedly murdered uh, and was shown in a bikini, so they were, uh, the son was appeared to be eroticizing the violence and again, you know, not looking at, at, at the murder and the, and the seriousness of the issue. And what is very disturbing to women is they can't get justice. So I wondered in, in your discussion and, and what's been going on at the UN, what moves you see to address that issue? Because on the one hand, it's it's, it's proposed as free speech that, that this happens, but the speech of an, half the population is then being cut off or the justice is being cut off. So how do you reconcile those two when actually there's a commercial imperative by those free speech proponents sometimes to denigrate women? Thank you. We'll let the High Commission address those three issues, the question of um, Tamils in Sri Lanka, uh, freedom of expression and the demand for devolution the instant process and resolution 618 and whether this is actually a challenge to some of the uh, treaty processes and the eroticization of women in the press and the response to that. Thank you. Well, what you described in Sri Lanka is of uh, real concern to me. Uh, and this is what I highlighted in my speech, how to get governments to implement the international standards of protecting speech and, uh, and not acting against those who uh, uh, express themselves, particularly in, in the context that you mentioned. Uh, I'm very, very concerned now on how to get implementation because I, am, I continue to hear thousands and thousands of complaints. I'm very concerned about reprisals against human rights defenders who... Um, ask for an end to a monarchy or ask for a different kind of constitutional systems. And legitimate speech, I think, is being threatened by certain governments. Uh, and so constantly I'm also looking for measures and creating the uh, discussions to expose these practices, but mainly to find the uh, solutions to get governments to respect free speech. Um, with regard to uh, the consensus, that was, uh, you're quite right. Everything, I shouldn't say this, but everything that's done, resolved in the United Nations, because it's an intergovernmental process, um, is still fragile. Just next day, someone may come up with some provision uh, to take it backwards. I still hear people referring to uh, defamation of religion. 
Um, I've heard it very recently in New York, just two, three days ago when I was there. So it's almost like the UN part, the New York part of UN has not caught up with the Geneva part of UN. <laughs> so I, I have lots of work to do. Um, I think that uh, this, what I described to you is a two-year process. You see how we did it? Very slowly, we involved governments. We involved experts from the, all the countries. It will be very difficult to, ups, to upset this document that we will be launching in Geneva next week because it's a product of such wide discussions with the uh, active involvement of civil society actors, yeah, including from uh, countries that suffer um, discrimination and oppression of free speech. So I feel this was a very carefully nurtured process. It will uh, uh, be very difficult to challenge us or push this back. There will be a challenge on implementation. Other processes that you mentioned, such as Istanbul process and very many um, institutions for religious dialogue uh, in other parts of the world are, I think, following a different track, um, very, a very emotional approach to what they call defamation of a particular religion, um, a denial of uh, conversion to any other religion, for instance, a denial of acknowledging that freedom of religion means freedom not to practice a religion. So they're really very far from those principles. Um, so that's why I feel that this, that this process that has been embarked, adopted unanimously by the Human Rights Council, which really means all those same states, uh, I think um, I'm now looking at it as a very important tool at, at the best. Um, thank you for your Question, Jackie. I, uh, like everyone else, felt um, at an emotional level disgust when you see uh, media uh, portraying um, women um, in, in various forms of nudity. And you're quite right. The Sun picture today of the victim of the uh, Pistorius killing um, tells us once again where the focus lies. It's an it's a act of violence, and that's how it should be portrayed. But I uh, see what you're saying, that how harmful this is, in that it stifles 50% of the world's population from their right of freedom of expression because women's voices are not reflected in the media. Now, in my um, discussion, I looked at uh, what remedial action could be taken by states through proper legislation, but I also looked at training and a change of culture in this, with regard to police and, and emphasize the role that media needs to play on this. So I hope media he, here is listening. Let's hope so. Yeah. Okay, the gentleman in the red, and we haven't taken a question from up there yet. Um, the gentleman in the jacket at the back, uh, the lady in the middle, and the gentleman on the right-hand side, and then we'll come Back. Um, okay, um, sure. Uh, I would just like to say, because this was linking on to the first point made, because I felt it didn't really uh, link into the topic sentence, but um, I'm going to try and link it in and expand upon that point about what's going on in Sri Lanka at the moment. Um, more 
specifically about the UN failures in Sri Lanka concerning uh, freedom of expression and hate speech. Um, for example, in 1950s and 1960s, there were huge prog- uh, pogroms, as said, but more specifically, there was the Sinhalese-only acts that uh, said that Sinhalese was the only language allowed, which discriminated against um, the official language of Sri Lanka, which discriminated against Tamils uh, uh, in huge aspects. Um, also, the continuous failures of the UN, uh, as highlighted in the Petri report that released uh, recently, I'd like to know how exactly, exactly the UN uh, plans to deal with this problem and um, uh, how this will differ from what has been said previously about uh, previous acts of genocide, such as that, those in Rwanda and stuff like that, and how we can le- learn from these lessons. Okay. I, I would like the High Commissioner to address questions related to what she said. And Sorry. If not, then... It remains within her discretion whether she address it or not. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you, High Commissioner. I uh, have a very concrete uh, case, a uh, couple of cases that we had here recently in the university in the uh, UK. Uh, we had um, um, cases where um, um, atheist societies. Uh, at universities were publishing images of religious leaders, of Muhammad and Jesus, for example, or there was this case of Reading University, which um, had uh, a stall, and they named a fruit, uh, a pineapple, actually. They named it Muhammad, and they also named other religious leaders, and so on and so on. And there has been a lot of controversy uh, around that. So uh, I'm not... uh, legally very uh, firm, so I'm, I'm not quite sure whether what you meant, uh, what you said when you meant, what you said that ideas can be harmful and that stereotyping can be indeed uh, be harmful. Uh, would that mean that these cases where people get offended by, you know, attack by the attack of their religion might indeed be outlawed in the future? Is this, has it become more likely or less likely? Thank you. said in, in uh, your talk that um, your office has consistently taken the position that um, it's important to distinguish between types of speech that should be criminalized, those that should be sanctioned only with um, civil penalties, and those that shouldn't be sanctioned um, but that, uh, that uh, should be um, uh, addressed in other ways. And you mentioned that, um, that hate speech in sports could be one example. Um, I, I'm hoping that you could just elaborate on that a little bit. And what are some of the benefits of addressing um, hateful speech in uh, uh, outside of the the criminal law framework? Um, the first question related to the UN's own failures in um, protecting uh, human rights and preventing human rights violations, and and of course the UN has previously produced a report on the Rwandan genocide, and now a report called the um, Petri Report, which examines the UN's failures in Sri Lanka. I welcome that report and, uh, and encouraged that the UN examine its failings, and um, three days ago I uh, um, included a reference to this in my address to the Security Council and said that all the lessons 
uh, recommendations that were made in the post-Rwanda genocide report had not been implemented in the Sri Lanka conflict situation by the United Nations as highlighted by the Petri report. Um, so I will constantly urge, because my mandate is a protection uh, and, uh, of uh, human rights, protection and promotion, and the UN should be taking a lead role in this, uh, and I will continue to attempt to do this. Uh, I'm very pleased that following the Petri report, the uh, Deputy Secretary General has set up a task force uh, where we are all involved on, um, on taking, uh, highlighting policy and action, but mainly action by the United Nations to address the situation. Um, what you described uh, about the pamphlets uh, floating around on your campus, which, uh, um, which is very hurtful, to the, the adherence of the Islamic faith, because these are cartoons that ridicule Prophet uh, Muhammad. Um, I think it's these kind of incidents that um, inspired us to hold the uh, expert discussions that we did, because the response to the Danish cartoons, the burning of Korans, evokes uh, such anger and uh, emotion that there were demonstrations, as you know, that turned violent in Afghanistan, where two of my own staff were killed. Um, and, and this is what I meant about legal criteria and preferably a court uh, examining the, the statements that were made, the context, and who made it, and the likelihood, and the risk of uh, this being incitement uh, to hatred and incitement to um, violence. And even in my own decisions in the uh, media case in um, the Rwanda tribunal, we said that it need not have resulted in actual violence. So incitement itself could be a crime. Um, I hope that um, assists a little bit in your answer. I said very cautiously it has to be judged case by case. What we are um, very concerned about is just a wholesale prohibition of, of this kind of speech, uh, merely because it is offensive. It has to be much more to reach the threshold of prohibition. Um, I think the third question uh, was also in connection with how to be addressing the hate speech. Was that it? Or did you have uh, another component to your question? The third question? Can you remember? All right. Uh, the, the benefits of addressing hate speech oh, outside yeah, out of criminal of, yeah, law? out of the criminal justice system, yeah. So, you know, as a, as a judge, I always thought in terms of uh, how to address it under criminal law. Now, as High Commissioner for Human Rights, I uh, listen to what people are saying. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I knew it all before as a judge. Um, so, really, it's not 
a solution at all times to prosecute people. We have to look at other solutions such as education, human rights education, and uh, uh, teaching uh, people values. I saw wonderful demonstrations in uh, schools in Gaza and uh, the island of Gori where there was human rights education and just children talking about how they would resolve disputes and not uh, call each other names, just respect, dignity. So these are what I meant by alternative forms of addressing this. But we have existing in national legal systems anyway, uh, civil damages for defamation. Um, I should tell you that I received countless number of uh, complaints of various incidents asking me to speak out on the incidents, such as the Quran burning, uh, the destruction in the Coptic church in Egypt. So it's, it's really an extremely hot issue. And people are deeply hurt by these expressions, uh, but we do not want international standards and international human rights law and international humanitarian law to be trampled by emotional responses to these. Uh, And so that's why I I, uh, look forward to very many suggestions on alternative ways of addressing hate speech. The gentleman on the right. um, Hi. Professor uh, Francesca Kluge and the lady behind in the purple dress. Hello. Hi, my name is Uvindu. I'm a visiting fellow uh, here at media department from Sri Lanka. I want to uh, tell you something. Uh, my friend Lasanta Vikramatunga was killed 2009 January. He was the editor of Sunday Leader. His brother uh, sent me an uh, email and told me, Hi, do not forget to speak to Navi to include Lasantha case. President told me three times that the former general killed Lasantha. Okay? So he asked me, you know who is former general. So the issue is why uh, if president uh, knows former president killed him, why he's not prosecuted? The announcement is, 10 minutes ago, Sunday leader journalist Farsa has been shot just now, 10 minutes ago, and admitted to Colombo South Hospital. Thank you. Professor Clark? Thanks so much again for a really fascinating lecture. And I also hope to see your face before too long uh, amongst those mainly esteemed men in that row. I wanted to tease out a little bit more um, what you were saying about international human rights norms and standards and how they should be um, applied or might be applied to the vexed issue of um, offensive um, pictorial representations. And I'm thinking particularly of the 
so-called Danish cartoon controversy that you uh, refer to in passing, um, because I think uh, arguably uh, those were cartoons that didn't just depict the faith of Islam in a derogatory way, but Islamic people in a derogatory way. And I wonder, therefore, how you think those norms and standards should be applied in such a situation. The lady yeah. at the back. And Hi. My name is Frances Harrison. I'm a journalist and an author of a book about uh, war crimes in Sri Lanka. I'd like to ask you, pertaining to this particular subject, how you propose to ensure the right to freedom of expression for activists, journalists, uh, witnesses to the war crimes coming from Sri Lanka to Geneva during the March session because many of them are now deeply intimidated by the action we saw last year by the Sri Lankan government where we even had a minister who threatened to break the legs of any activist who went to Geneva to speak and we had death threats actually in the UN building. How will you protect those people's rights this time because many of them simply are too frightened to come to Geneva now? Yeah, well, in respect of Sri Lanka, I've, I've already uh, expressed my concern. I'm very sorry to hear of the journalist who was killed today. Uh, we, we track, particularly in respect of journalists, I'm appalled by the numbers of journalists, particularly investigative journalists who are killed just for, uh, for writing or expressing an opinion. Uh, right from Mexico to parts of uh, Africa, uh, I'm, ver I'm very uh, troubled by this. So clearly it's um, uh, an extreme form of uh, repression of free speech. How are we going to address it in the United Nations? Uh, you're quite right, this did happen. There were reprisals against um, representatives of civil society of Sri Lanka who came uh, to um, inform the Human Rights Council. Now, this is the a very <coughs> legitimate public activity. It was picked up in the council, addressed by the president of the council, who reprimanded the people concerned. And I wrote to the foreign minister, because I think that some of these threats appeared on his website, and asked him to remove that start by be, removing that from his website. And, and so we on the watch out for this, and I hope that it doesn't happen again because it was really exposed in a, in a very firm way at the last session of the Human Rights Council. Um, as I said, much of these um, discussions and um, the, a gathering of so many experts and civil society all over the world to address um, the question of Article 19 and 20 was inspired by these extreme forms of uh, um, portrayal of uh, people who followed the Islamic faith, the cartoons being um, an example of this. And, and this, is, this is why it was so emotional in the council, because immediately something like this happens and there is a debate in the council for, for extreme measures and for a resolution condemning Denmark, for instance. And so when I say that these are the kind of activities inspired this uh, effort to get, uh, get this process into an intergovernmental forum, because that's where you, you can get action and you can spell out obligations. 
in a very clear way. It's an ongoing process, clearly because these kind of uh, uh, cartoons and um, activities are continuing. Thank you. International Human Rights Standards. Francesca asked a question about international human rights standards and the application. Yeah, but I thought I said it in my speech. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, there's a gentleman here who has been, um, I think, very patient for a while. Uh, there's a lady in the middle, um, and I'll look up again um, and take uh, a lady with a black sweater close to the front. Thanks. Hello, hi, Commissioner. My name's Gavin Phillips, and I'm... Um, a law professor from the University of Durham. And I wanted to ask you really something we haven't touched on yet, which is what you see as the kind of key function, I suppose, of, of hate speech laws. Because US scholars particularly press upon us the fact that in practice, although they may have admirable aims, hate speech bans may be useless or counterproductive. Um, for example, it's often pointed out that prosecutions, for example, of Holocaust deniers enormously amplify the message as it's reported in the media, in the blogosphere, and so on that you can turn people who were hitherto despised in their message into free speech martyrs or romantic revolutionaries because they can protest against the fact that they're being suppressed by the state. And this, in fact, can increase sympathy for their, for their message and actually give comfort to, to radical or extremist groups because they say, well, we can't even say what we want, so you know, if we can't even speak, let's turn to violence. So in response to that, some people have suggested that a, a better way of envisaging what hate speech bans are for is really the kind of expressive function of criminal law. In other words, it's for the state as a way of the state expressing its authoritative disapproval of the speech in a way that can be seen to therefore symbolically reaffirm the dignity of those persons who've been attacked. And that seems to me to be certainly a, a, something that the law can be seen to do um, fairly clearly just in its operation because I do think that the, the empirical evidence for the efficacy of hate speech bans seems shaky at best and I wonder if you could comment on that. Thank you. Hi, Commissioner. My name is Olivia Whedon. I'm a master's student um, here at the LSE. I was just, um, you mentioned in your speech briefly in the beginning the internet, and you've, you've talked about, just here, you've talked about new media. I was Obviously, the kind of the, what's going on on the internet and freedom of expression and hate speech, in a sense, are, are kind of interrelated. So I just wanted to know what exactly is being done or by your office and by the Human Rights Council, perhaps to address this new arena, the internet, and how freedom of expression and hate speech kind of interacts in that, in that sphere. Thank you. Okay, and then finally there's a lady, not finally, but for this series of questions, <laughs> almost at the front. Um, I think there is a big concern at the moment with the rise of ultra right-wing political parties, particularly in Europe, such as Golden Dawn, for example, in Greece, that um, are, well, just very discriminatory. And I'm just wondering whether you think... I know that there is a danger, of course, if we say that parties like that should be banned from being in Parliament. Golden Dawn, for example, at the moment has a third of the Greek support population, uh, which is um, depressing. But uh, how do we deal with, with this issue? Because there is a danger in saying you can't ban a political party that can be used to ban a position. But then something that, 
does have to be done. There has to be some sort of sanction on the state um, to, control, to control that, to not let parties like that go out of control. So I'm just wondering what your view is on that and what can be done. Oh, I have three questions already, yes. Um, uh, so you are quite right. Sometimes prohibiting uh, speech can be counterproductive. And this is what I meant. It can be uh, misused either way. So even as you were asking the question, I was thinking of the Florida priest who burned the Quran. And I can't tell you the number... <coughs> of delegations who came to me and were highly critical that I had not immediately condemned it. Uh, President Karzai condemned it and the, uh, it, it evoked so much violence resulting in, in the death of a few people including my staff. And, and this is what I also said to these delegations. This is why I did not want to um, spread what uh, a small priest in a small town has done and, and make that international news. On the other hand, I assure you it was highly appreciated that President Obama apologized for that act on the part uh, and, and why it was so uh, strategic and politic for him to have done that is because in other parts of the world they lump the whole of the United States in, in any act, action such as that. Whole, you know, the whole of Denmark blamed for those cartoons uh, with serious economic consequences for Denmark because of boycotts. Uh, which brings us to, therefore, other forms of not only protecting free speech but other ways in which we can address these situations. Um, as I said, these, these are all matters that we are dealing with today. They're just live issues. Um, how to then extend to the internet and uh, electronic media? There were discussions in the Human Rights Council about this as well. Um, censorship of the internet, and, and people argued there is necessity for censorship because you can have stuff such as racist propaganda, pornography, sexist. Uh, propaganda. So there is a need, but how to go about it? Well, the bottom line is the same rules that apply uh, for freedom of expression in general apply to whatever the medium that is used, print, video, television, or internet. But um, thank you for the question, because this is, uh, I don't think that uh, people are prepared for the new media and how to approach these matters. Governments are not prepared. The United Nations is busy holding discussions on this. Uh, in Greece, I, um, Golden Dawn is a political party that came out with extremely vicious propaganda against migrants and, uh, and uh, pe people of color. It's very, very harmful racist propaganda. And I uh, wrote to the Greek government saying that this is very, very likely to incite violence and hatred, and you have to take some action against Golden Dawn. Uh, so what I was saying, not the banning of the party, but you have to prohibit this uh, kind of uh, 
extremely um, dangerous propaganda against migrants that was um, being spread across Greece, which had in fact resulted in the deaths of several of African migrants who were there. Can we take one from this side of the room, uh, the lady in front, and then we've got two sides of the theater, this gentleman here. Anyone that side? No? The gentleman in the scarf, wearing a scarf. Thank you. Uh, thanks for your very incisive remarks tonight, um, Hi Commissioner. My name is Tara O'Leary. I work for an organization in London called Redress. We work with victims of torture and other crimes under international law and accessing justice. Um, and I suppose I wanted to pick up on a couple of remarks you've made tonight in relation to um, the media case at the, at the Tribunal for Rwanda and the role that hate speech and propaganda has played in the commission of crimes such as genocide. Um, and I'm sure you're well aware there's uh, concerns lately, uh, I suppose <coughs> particularly in relation to Rwanda, about the role of Holocaust denial um, in essentially now being used in itself to limit free speech. Um, and I suppose, you know, given your experience in that area particularly, it would be great if you could share some thoughts on the paradox of that, really, um, and the sort of uh, unlikeliness of, of efforts to protect uh, or prevent commission of these crimes now being used to limit speech itself, um, and whether some of the, measurement, the measures or mechanisms you outlined earlier in combating this area, um, whether those are the most appropriate means to address this, or if other means would be more, uh, maybe more useful. Gentleman in the middle with the scarf, the mild colored scarf. I'm, I'm interested to know if someone were to come to you and say that they genuinely believe, genuinely believe that people who don't believe in their faith don't deserve to have the same rights, how do you sway their opinion? How do you convince them that they're wrong and that that person who is a non believer has the same rights as them? Uh, thank you very much for your talk today. Uh, I'm a human rights defender. I travel to Geneva very often. Uh, I'll be there next week, uh, week after. Uh, how efficient um, in implementing the Article 1920 uh, and the ICED, uh, also the Resolution 1618, uh, the operating clauses under uh, the point five, which is the state responsibilities, especially uh, in regimes that are um, oppressive regimes that are motivated by majoritarian political ideology against numerically uh, minority people uh, in a country, and what mechanisms, tools that UNHRC uh, have um, about the state sovereignty protection in a highly political, uh, multilateral, uh, you know, settings like UN or UN Human Rights Council. Uh, I am deeply troubled by where, how Rwanda has made um, genocide denial a crime following, as you correctly say, on the precedent of Holocaust denial, uh, where, for instance, France, Germany, yeah, have laws prohibiting the Holocaust. Yeah, there's endless arguments d distinguishing why they needed the law on the Holocaust. Um, but in Rwanda, uh, 800,000 uh, Tutsis were killed, but 600,000 Hutus were killed. And there are very... Uh, uh, well, uh, documented criticism of the UN tribunal itself uh, that um, 
And, and the statute, which uh, had the, uh, limited the jurisdiction of the court to trying people uh, guilty of the crime of genocide of the Tutsis. Okay. So I do agree with you. There seems to be now a body of jurisprudence which is being um, misused in, in contexts that are not the same. <laughs> I think that Redress needs to do much more work on this, and I'll be uh, also following this very, very closely. Uh, but uh, thank you, thank you for that. I mean, then, then the, you know, I sat uh, next to. Uh, well, I don't want to mention the country, but they do say the first genocide was the Armenian genocide, and they're very upset about the denial of the Armenian genocide. So where is all this going to go to? Good point. Um, and about, um, about someone uh, coming to tell me uh, that they are entitled to deny rights to others who don't follow the same faith, what would I say? Yeah, I found myself in real-life situations like that. I went to Maldives, and the Constitution says you can only be a citizen if you're a Muslim. And when I raised this and said, what about the... 300,000 Bangladesh people you have here in the Christian community. Um, of course, the tourists don't count. They, <laughs> they come and go. Yeah, so I was told this is a 100% um, Islamic country, and that's it. That's our law. The Chief Justice of Indonesia told me that too. So this is a Muslim country. These are our laws. So my answer is to point to the uh, international covenant to which uh, all these states uh, belong. They have an obligation to implement the international covenant. So my key message is you're violating the, uh, your obligations under international law. And this is why in a statement I issued on, on in, in relation to President Morsi's draft constitution, the previous constitution of the 1970s and so on had a reference to the international treaties. His constitution is supposed to advance, not go backwards. Well, they've deleted the reference to the international treaties to which Egypt uh, belongs to, is obliged to comply with. And this is the important work of the treaty bodies. They call on these states to report to them. You know. And so this would be a key question that a country concern would be asked. I'm also troubled by um, certain countries where a conversion to another religion is not allowed. So really um, an exclusion of very many people who do not subscribe to the majority religion is extremely troublesome, which brings me to your question on minorities, um, political minorities, religious minorities, women, um, are all vulnerable to a denial of fundamental rights such as freedom of expression and participation in the political process, having a role in decision-making. This has been addressed, and there are many resolutions passed in the Human Rights Council, so it's a very regular discussion on how we uh, look after the rights of minorities. So thank you for your question. And the chair might be working on these issues as well. Yes, I do, but it's <coughs> it's not my floor at this point. It's your floor. <laughs> I'm asking you to help you. <laughs> well, um, may I just 
thank you all very much for the uh, intellectual discipline that you have shown towards uh, the High Commissioner. Uh, you may be interested to know that the Centre for the Study of Human Rights will be hosting two further events. One on the 2nd of March, a panel discussion on the power of literature in a human rights context. And on the 7th of March, a discussion on the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women and the global campaign to end impunity of violence uh, against women. Um, may I also ask that as we exit, please, um, if we would let the High Commissioner uh, leave first um, and give her room to do so. And it now remains for me uh, to thank the High Commissioner very much for her stimulating lecture and her precise answers to the questions that were given. High Commissioner, thank you very much.